You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. In my opinion, hey, you're supposed to be sitting down now, come on. In my opinion, what we're going to talk about today, the, just the, the topic that we're going to barely scrape the surface, for me, is one of the most exciting elements of the book of Revelation. In my opinion, if you haven't studied Revelation, or maybe you have studied it and you got really confused and you're like trying to figure out everything that's going on, in my opinion, what we're going to touch, just touch on today, and we'll be visiting more and more as we go through Revelation, will start to align Revelation like it's never been aligned for you before. And things are going to start to come alive, and you're going to start to understand the powerful message that is the gospel of Revelation. Now, we have the privilege of joining uh, Pullman this morning, so let's give them a shout out. Glad to be with you guys. And uh, like Carrie said, this is my last sermon here, and uh, I'm excited that it's this one. In fact, uh, Aaron was really sad that he missed this sermon, and I was really happy. Uh, sorry, Aaron, I'm not sorry. So yeah, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Uh, last two weeks, we've talked about these two things, the apocalyptic literature its genre, what it's there for, what it does, its time frame, what it's wrestling with, its use of imagery and metaphors, the questions it's wrestling with, as well as the source material that John is going to be pulling heavily from, specifically Daniel, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, as well as many other themes of the story of God's people from Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Isaiah, the Psalms, Joel, and, and on and on and on. And we talked about, we set it up with that, just so we all understand that this isn't created out of thin air. This week, we're going to dive into a little bit more, uh, the the idea of the social and political context of the people he is writing to. Now, in Revelation 2 and 3, we find the letters to the seven churches. And before we talk about those, I just want to make it very clear that Chapters 2 and 3 are not addressed to the seven churches and then everything else is addressed to everyone. No, everything, everything else in the book of Revelation is about these seven churches and it's written to them. And everything that comes after chapters 2 and 3 is going to reinforce what Jesus said to the seven churches. So we're going to skip, and I know many are unhappy about it. I'm sorry, I'm just a youth pastor. I can't say that much longer. Um, I'm just a youth pastor, so I don't make those calls. Uh, but the, w- the reason we're doing it, the reason we're doing it is because we've already done, did a series, a seven-week series on the seven churches. And we didn't want to spend another seven weeks. We want to kind of keep moving through the book of Revelation. If you want to go watch those series, we would encourage you to do so. At a minimum, make sure you read chapters two and three. You'll, you, you should, you'll be able to get a basic idea of what Jesus is saying to them. And you'll understand why the rest of the book of Revelation, as we go through it, matters to those two chapters. The seven letters, we see these, three, uh, these seven cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And what happens in chapters two and three is Jesus is going to approach the elder of every church, and he's going to say, he's going to give some commendations, this is what I have for you. And then he's going to give some critiques, this is what I have against you. There's going to be some promise or some warning. If you keep on remaining faithful, you will receive a crown of life. Or if you keep remaining unfaithful, I will snuff your lampstand out. There's some description of Jesus uh, that's always a little bit different in each one. There's different imagery that, that is employed, including stones with names on it. And in our seven series on the churches, uh, we talked about all of that. 
Now, what's important to know is that th- these seven churches aren't randomly selected. These are the churches that John the Apostle was pastoring in the province of Asia. So we're going to move into talking about this province, why we, what we need to know about this province, and also a little bit what we need to know about the Roman Empire at this time. So we're going to start talking about the social political context that is around the letter, around the revelation of John. So here's a map of the Roman Empire. At one time, it went all the way from Britain down to India. It's massive. It's huge. To put this in context, this is about as tall and wide as the continental United States. And they have a flipping ocean in the middle of it. Like, they don't have modern communication or transportation. And yet they were able to have this large of an empire. Like, this is impressive. Even on today's standards, this is a huge empire. Now, in the area in red is the Roman province Asia that we would see in modern-day Turkey. And those little, those little dots are the seven churches, and also one of the little dots that's on the island, that's the island of Patmos that John would have been writing from. Now, this area is a unique area because what you see to the west is the Greco-Roman world. Uh, and you can see that they're kind of geographically united, like they're, they, they're all together. Now, to the east, you're going to have things like India and things like China. And what you see is in this area, you're going to find a merging of culture, merchandise, economy, politics, worldviews, and religions. And what's important to remember, just I want to point this out too, is this is where uh, uh, South America on foot would be coming up through as well. And so uh, you're going to see this merging that happens in this area. One of the reasons that the Greek and Roman Empire was able to be successful is because when they conquered lands, they didn't destroy the religious system, they assimilated it. And they, they pulled it into their own. So you could still have your gods as long as you bend your knee to our Caesar. So uh, what we want to do is we want to look at a little bit more about what's happening in this area. And by the way, uh, you could see uh, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea where Israel would be. And as not only is there this movement of culture and economy and politics and religions that start to mesh together, as the gospel of Jesus starts to spread, it starts to go up through that land, that same area first. And then it slowly starts to creep towards Rome. So you have all these things happening in this area. Now the next picture is a picture of the Agora in Ephesus. And to us it looks like a big pile of rocks, but it's more than that. And you can, I, th- I hope you can at least see how impressive this would have been back in their day. Can you imagine 20, 30-foot pillars with these, uh, these colony, these, uh, this covering, this roof that was over it? You can see how wide it was. It was this large rectangle. In the middle, he had this open area. Now, the Agora for these people would have been kind of like our mall and city hall combined, our city mall, I guess you could call it. And it was, it was a place you would go for trade, but it was so much more than that. It was official business meetings happening here. Official trade agreements, city and government business happened in this location. In the middle of the Agora, there would have been a temple to Julius Caesar and to the Roman god Roma, which is where they get the name Rome and Roman from. And you have this temple right in the middle. Now, most scholars agree in order to enter this area, you would have to pay tribute to, to the Caesar and to Roma. And there would have been these altars of incense that you would go and you would offer your incense to. And then you could enter to trade here. 
Now, some scholars are asking the question, how would they know who got in who, and like, who actually did the tribute and who didn't? And some scholars think that there would have been a mark that you would have taken. Maybe it would have been the ash from the incense. Maybe it would have been some type of stamp, like when you go clubbing. I never go clubbing because I'm a Christian. But you know what I mean, right? Um, it's a joke. But no, I don't go clubbing. Awkward. Uh, anyway, but you get the point, right? Like that stamp. I remember going to junior high dances and like, Someone would get the stamp, and then you'd lick the back of your hand, and don't do that, by the way. Anyway, so there would have been some mark that you would have gotten. Now, uh, let's talk about the Caesars of this time. See, the book of, John, the, the book of Revelation is going to be pulling from all this Old Testament imagery. One of the images it's going to pull from is from the book of Daniel, where there's these four beasts that are written about. And the beasts are symbols of different world powers. And these world powers are going to represent different kingdoms. During the time of the writing of this, the Jews are wrestling with who is the fourth beast. And for the most part, they all agree it's Rome. Now, they would call Satan a dragon or a serpent. And so they would talk about how if there's any government that is oppressing God's people, it's a beast. So let's talk about the Roman Caesars at this time. And let's get an understanding of what they were doing and how this is going to clash with the book of Revelation. So here's the Caesars that we have. We have Julius Caesar from 49 to 44 BC, and he's assassinated at the end of this. Now, scholars are going to say that Augustus is the first emperor. But in Rome's mind, the first emperor is actually Julius Caesar. Now, there's this kerfuffle that happens after he's assassinated. It's the technical historical word. Uh, There's a civil war that breaks out. And a few guys unite together to, to squash the rebellion. And after they squash the rebellion, they're bored, so they fight it out amongst themselves. And out on top is Augustus. Now, Augustus' original name is Octavian. He is the adopted son of Julius Caesar. From there, we have all these other emperors. Let's just kind of scroll through these. Uh, Claudius, Nero, Galba, next. And then we end with this guy named Domitian. By the way, there's 12 Caesars at this time, and that's important. In fact, there's this ancient historical document called the 12 Caesars. That is really important for us to understanding how they worked and how they operated and what they did. Now, Domitian is a unique guy, but we're going to get there here in a moment because Domitian is the emperor that's uh, in power at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. Now, back at the beginning, though, when Julius Caesar is assassinated, Augustus, at the time his name is Octavian, he sees a comet in the sky. And so when he consolidates power of the Roman Empire, he has an idea. He's going to create a propaganda machine that is going to use religious terms to to support his reign as Caesar. So we have a picture of Augustus. This is Augustus. He's holding in his uh, left hand here a scroll. Now you'll see many different things that the emperors will be holding in their hands, whether it's in artwork, whether it's in statues, or whether it's on coins. The scroll is going to be a sign of their word, their proclamations, their decrees, what they say, who they have life over, and who they deem death over. It's a symbol of their power. By the way, this statue with him sitting down is seven feet tall. And it's, you already, like, they're already boasting their, their image of who they are. So Augustus has this idea. He's going he's gonna to use this comet in the sky as a sign. So what he says is that he saw the Son of God ascending into heaven. And he has 12 witnesses. The Greek word would be martyrs. 12 witnesses who are going to testify to this truth. 
And so he's going to claim that Julius Caesar is divine. In fact, he has the Roman Senate officially declare the deity of Julius Caesar. And now Augustus needs to get this message out. And one of the main ways he's going to use is he's going to use coins. Because coins are the currency of the empire. And so we have this coin here. This, is, this coin is called Julius Caesar's star, referring to the comet. So you see Julius Caesar, and on the other side you see the star. But you have this Latin word, divivi filius, and it means son of God. And so you can start seeing that Augustus is going to start not just claiming that he is the human leader of the empire, but that he is the god of the Roman empire. That he is the official divine representative of this world. Now, As I said, Octavian, which later changes his name to Augustus, Augustus means magnificent one, great one. You know, if you ever change your name, you're going to change it to something like that, right? Uh, When he changes his name, he is going to leverage the fact that he is the son of Caesar. So if Julius Caesar is the son of God, then that would make Augustus also a son of God. And so what happens during this time is that uh, there's this emperor worship that starts to spread throughout the Roman Empire. Now, it's going to spread and it's going to be in different places at different times. And every Caesar is going to leverage and change emperor worship to whatever, however they see fit. In fact, there's a lot of Caesars who aren't comfortable with it. Like they're not entirely, like they're not really keen on it, but they're going to allow it to happen because it helps them. Uh, But they're all going to use it slightly differently. However, in the area of the province of Asia where the seven churches are, what we find is that emperor worship, the, the cult of the emperor, starts to take off almost in a viral sense. In fact, one, of the, uh, one uh, scholar by the name of Stephen Christensen, uh, Stephen Christensen is going to state that in the area of Asia Minor, there were more religious rites that happened uh, to the emperors than to the gods themselves. And these were things that the entire city would be involved in. These were things that if you were part of a guild, you would be expected to partake in. And it's going to start taking off incredibly quickly. In the city of Myra, we find this description talking about Augustus. It says, The God Augustus Caesar, son of a God, ruler of land and sea, benefactor and savior of the whole world. And so in this area, they're, gonna, they're really going to buy into this idea that the emperor is a god, and they're going to devote their religious energy into, into worshiping them. Now, there's this, uh, uh, during this time, there's a problem, though. We have all these Caesars, all these people who have some type of title of them being god, of them being lord. The problem is, is that they all died. And Christians were like, you know, you guys are dead, Ours isn't. In fact, you tried to kill him and you didn't do a good job. Like, there, there's going to be this problem. Now, whenever a new Caesar came to power or whenever a new Caesar was born, there was a proclamation sent out into the world. Or whenever they uh, conquered a new land, there was a proclamation sent. And there's, there's, there's always this idea of we have good news for you that you need to hear. Augustus tried to actually change the calendar around to focus on his birthday. And what we find in the city, in the area of uh, Asia Minor, we find that there's this one city named Pre, uh, Priene, and we find this inscription in the city of Priene, and it says this, it seemed good to the Greeks of Asia in the opinion of the high priest Ap- Apollonius and Menophilius, of Menophilius, whatever that last word was, since Providence, no, I'm skipping it, since Providence, which has ordered all things, is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus. 
whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind, sending him as a savior both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since the Caesar, through his appearance, has exceeded the hopes of all former gospels, surpassing not only the benefactors that came before him, but also, hold on to this one, we'll come back, but also leaving no hope that anyone in the future will surpass him. And since for the world, the birthday of the God was the beginning of his good messages, gospels. Augustus would actually set up a 12-day advent to celebrate his birth. Like, you can see the propaganda machine that Rome would start employing to garner support and to demand allegiance to. This wasn't just a political thing, this was a religious thing. Now, as, as we go through the different Caesars at different times, we eventually come to Domitian. And Domitian was a character. He was special. He was a special little flower. Here's a picture of him. Yet again, he's holding a scroll, this time in his right hand, and he's holding a globe in his other, picturing his world domination. Domitian uh, was, was a special fr- fruitcake. He, uh, he demanded that his wife call him my lord and my god which makes make me a sandwich sound so much better. But before you guys get any ideas, before you guys get any ideas, his wife later helped assassinate him. Just saying. Just saying. And I think he had it coming. He, uh, he was described as loving to catch flies and stab them with needles. One of his favorite things to do at the games was to watch, to make women and dwarfs fight. Uh, He was described by Pliny as being a beast that sat in his den and lapped up blood. He would start his letters sometimes with the phrase, your Lord and your God commands you. No ego problem here at all. Uh, He would have a group of people, 24 people, that would wear white white robes with gold crowns. And they would go before him and behind him, and they would sing, You are our Lord, our God, who deserves glory and honor and power. And they would go everywhere with them. Now, this is another, he uses coins as well, and here's a coin we find. Uh, This is one of many, and you see Augustus on your left, and then you see his son on his right. And his son is sitting on the earth, holding seven stars in his hands. The seven stars symbolized the seven planets that they were aware of, that they could see. And so we see that it's not just, like, he's not just communicating that he's the Roman Empire, but that he is over the world, and not just the world, but creation itself. And the inscription says, the divine son of the Caesar Domitian. What's unique about this that we need to talk a little bit more about is that this would be a position, this would be the type of image you would expect with a god Jupiter, or the Greek god Zeus, in fact, uh, what, what Domitian would often do is, instead of just a scepter or a globe or a scroll, oftentimes in his depictions, he would have him holding a thunderbolt. And this was, this was something that only Zeus, only Jupiter had the right to. And he started to claim for himself the godhead of the Greco-Roman Parthenon. Like this, like this is his view of himself. And he's, he's going to start really leveraging him as a god. Now, oftentimes in the Roman world, you would have these things called neo-choruses. 
neocorses were special areas of worship to gods. And what would, what would sometimes some, what would sometimes happen is an area, a city, would request permission from the Roman government to build a special temple, that they would be a special neo-chorus to this god. Ephesus did this, by the way, with the temple to uh, Artemis. In Ar- the temple of Artemis in Ephesus became one of the seven wonders of the world. They became a neo-chorus to Artemis. And you see this in different places all the time. Domitian had this idea that he was going to allow Ephesus to be his neo-chorus. So he says, hey, I give you permission, which means you're going to do it, to build me a temple. And so here's a picture of the temple of Domitian. And it's called by many names, by the way. Uh, it, it doesn't look like much right now because they tore it down after he died. Apparently they didn't like him. What we do know is that there was at least 24 pillars, maybe upwards of 48. These pillars were three stories high. And each of the pillars, we see two of them here, each of the pillars had God's in them. And so this would already be impressive. Now, Domitian built this right next to the Agora, but he didn't build it next to the Agora just to kind of be part of it. He built it so tall and so huge that it would overshadow the Agora. It was 100 100 by 200 feet. It was massive. It was huge. And all the pillars had all these gods carved into it, the picture of them supporting the pillars. And it was on top of this that he then built his temple, so you get the picture. The gods are supporting his own temple. And on top, of the te- on top there would be this 40-foot by 60-foot temple to himself. Now he was kind to allow his dad and his brother to be a part of it. By the way, most scholars think he killed his brother. But he was kind enough to let them be a part of it. But you know, you know this wasn't about his family. This was about him. And he constructed a statue in honor of himself. And scholars debate about where this statue would have been located, if it would have been located in the temple, or if it would have been located outside. They also debate if it was sitting or standing. My opinion, and most scholars agree, that this statue was outside and it was standing. And here's a picture of some of the parts that we have found of it. Ignore his nose job. Uh, he had a bad day that day. Uh, this thing was huge. His left forearm, which would have been holding a scroll, is nine feet tall in this picture. They estimate that this would have been at least 27 feet tall if he was standing. This would have been the tall, probably the tallest point in Ephesus. And it would have been strategically located that it would have been, been able to be seen as you come into the harbor. So imagine you're coming into harbor, you're coming from, you know, uh, Greece, you're going to make some trades, and you've never been to Ephesus before, and as you pull into the harbor, one of the first things you see is Emperor Domitian with his scroll. Or perhaps you're coming from the Silk Road from Asia. You're going to make some trades. You've never been to Ephesus before, and as you come through the valley, one of the first things you see is Domitian. Like he's making a statement here. Now, in front of the temple, there was this altar of incense, and we have a picture of the front of it. We believe it to be the front of the top highest part of it. And now it, the perspective is a little off, uh, but this would have been about 12 feet wide. And it would have been in a U-shape with the opening facing back towards the temple. And every year at, at important times of the year, you would be expected to come and pay tribute. You would come, you'd walk, along, uh, walk around the backside, climb up the stairs, and offer your incense offering in tribute to Augustus. Not Augustus, sorry, Domitian. And you can see some of the symbols. We see an oxen that's on the side, and there's a bunch of weapons that are on the front. And every year you'd be expected to pay tribute to your god, Domitian, 
because you live in Ephesus, and Ephesus is the special neo-chorus. In fact, by the way, these neo-choruses, these, these uh, cities, would sometimes be called ecclesias, which is the Greek word we get our word church from. There would be special meeting places for this god or for this emperor. Now, it's with all of this in mind, uh, all, all of this imagery and everything that Domitian expected, not just from the Roman world, but specifically from this area of Ephesus, that we have to start realizing the powerful message that Revelation is all about. Like, Revelation isn't just future prophecy or uh, a book that we could debate theologically for 2,000 years. It is a message of a defiant hope against an oppressive empire. It is calling for a submissive rebellion against a world power that is oppressing people and claiming to be God and acting like it. So with all this in mind, let's read Revelation 4. John says this, after, I, after this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, so this is loud, <clears throat> said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow. Um, the Greek word here isn't the same Greek word they would use for the in the Septuagint for rainbow. And I think that's on purpose. The Greek word here is Iris. Iris was a Greek god of the rainbow. And she was said to be the messenger between the gods and humans. I'll go back. Let me finish the line. And around the throne was a rainbow that had an appearance of an emerald. And around the throne were 24 thrones. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which were, are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. What? Like, that's weird looking. Like, you've heard your mom say she has eyes in the back of her head, but like, Imagine how freaked out you'd be if she spread her hair and there was an actual eye there. Like, this is weird. Now, John's going to describe four creatures that we've seen before. Not beasts, but creatures. These creatures show up in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 1. And he's going to describe them very similarly, but there are some differences. In Ezekiel, the four creatures that do the same thing here, they have, they're all identical, but they have four different faces. And it's going to be the same four faces as the animals and the human that he's going to describe. And what these are, the cherubim that surround God's throne. These are royal beasts that not just protect and guard the divine, but also proclaim his glory. And now what scholars debate here is what he's about to do later. He's going to talk about six wings. In Ezekiel, they only have four wings. But we see another beast that shows up in Isaiah that has six wings. And those beasts are called seraphim. And the seraphim are going to say the exact same thing that is later said in Revelation 4. So what many scholars think is that John is going to merge the two. All right? So let's uh, pay attention to this. So they're full of eyes in front and behind, meaning they see everything. And the first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. 
and the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now, people debate about what these beasts represent. And I'll just say we don't know. Like we all have their, they all have their opinions, but we really don't fully know. Some people think it represents the four Gospels. Sure, okay, fine, go with it. If you like it, go. Some people think it uh, thinks it represents different aspects of creation. I'm cool with that. I'm definitely cool with that. Uh, but we don't fully know. But what I find interesting is that in John's order of the of these creatures, the last creature is an eagle in flight. The symbol of the Roman government was an eagle, and not just an eagle, but an eagle with its wings spread. And I, I wonder if there's this message that John is saying to his people, even Rome will worship our creator. And he keeps going. The four living creatures, each of them had six wings and are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is to come. This isn't a quaint worship service. Like they're not whispering it to themselves in their pew, which is fine if you do that. It's cool. I get it. Uh, but this, this is thundering. This is shaking the heavens. This is, in the truest sense of the word, word awesome. And it says, And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created, even Domitian. Like, do you, do you see where John starts his message? He doesn't start it with the quaint, the nice reassurance, like, don't worry, all things work out for those who love God. Like, he doesn't start there. He says, listen, I know what you're facing. Like, you have kids you have to feed. You need to buy coal to keep your house warm. You have a job, you have a business, and you, you have, if you are to keep that, if you want your food, if you want your coal, if you want to support your family, you have to bend your knee. But don't you forget who actually sits on the throne and is not Domitian. Don't forget where your allegiance lies. You cannot buy into the gospel of Augustus or Domitian or to the Roman Empire. That is not where your allegiance falls. You have a higher king, a king who sits above the Roman Empire. Not this fake boy with an ego problem. The real deal. Don't Bend your knee because there's something more important than just this life and just the food that you need on your table. And like I can imagine that we might assume that when we read Revelation 4 that the early church would be like, yeah, yeah, that's a great message. I don't think so. I think, they, I think they read that and they look at their dining room table that's still empty with their four-year-old boy who is dying of starvation I think they think of their husband who was arrested because he refused to sing the hymns of Domitian when he came to visit. Like, I think they think of that. But this is where John starts. There is something more important than this right here and right now. Now, I think if we were to have a conversation with our first century brothers and sisters, they would have some implications to share with us. 
So we're going to move towards communion. So if you're serving communion, please go ahead and head back and serve that. As we move towards the implications, we ask that you'd hold on to the elements. That way we can wrestle together as one body, as one family. And if you're new with us, our communion is open, which means if you want to celebrate the Lord and his death and his burial and his resurrection, you're more invited to do so with us. Please do so. Implication number one. I think our brothers and sisters would say this. God is up to something so much bigger than any of us could ever perceive or understand. I don't know what questions you have that have remained unanswered for years. I don't know. I don't know what you've been struggling with for years. I don't know what you're about to go through or what you've already been through. I, I don't know, and I think they would tell you, keep going. You, you don't know what is going on beyond, behind the scenes on the world and cosmic level. But trust me, God's aware of it and God's making it all work. We've been through it. We've been through the fires of persecution and suffering and even death. And we've come out the other side. There is something that you cannot see that you need to hold on and hope to. I think they would also say this. Revelation invites us to redirect our life's perspective from the immediate present to a much grander story. I don't know how comfortable you are, how successful you've been, but I think the first century church would come and love to have a conversation with you. Like you, you feel quite comfortable with your wealth and your power and your honor, but you forget that there's someone else who sits on the throne and it's not you. Or, or maybe, maybe, listen, you might be going through some really awful times and I'm not, I am not gonna say it's not real and it doesn't hurt and it doesn't suck. I'm not gonna say that. But I think the first century, the first century church would encourage us to say, listen, you can suffer a little bit more. Like there, there, even when you have nothing, even when you've suffered to the point that you think you can't suffer more, there's still something you can hold on to. There's still something that you can stand firm upon and find joy and passion in. Don't forget that. Don't be distracted by your present circumstances, no matter how painful or how comfortable and great they are. Don't let that distract you from what's really important in this world. And this goes to our third implication I think they would have with us. I think they would say, hold on. Don't give up. Do not bend your knee. Refuse to compromise and keep pressing on. Maybe it's addiction for you. Maybe you've been fighting it for days, weeks, or even years. Listen, you can suffer a little bit more. You can endure just a little bit longer. Maybe it's your marriage is falling apart and it would just be so much easier just to sign the divorce papers and be done with it. Keep holding on. Maybe it's a child that has left or is ruining his life. Don't give up. Maybe it's financial crises. Maybe it's depression. I, I don't know what it is that you're facing. What it is you want to tap out on. I think the first century church would look you dead in the eyes and with tears running down their face, they would say, I understand, but hold on. Don't bend your knee. Just because other businesses practice in shady ways does not mean that you should. Just because other people dress in certain ways does not mean that you should. 
Just because other people treat you this way does not mean you should treat them that same way back. Hold on. Do not compromise. Don't, don't you dare bend your knee to anything except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't compromise. It might mean you lose your business. It might mean that you don't get food on your table. It might mean that you starve, that you're persecuted, that you're hated. It might mean that the world around you might fall apart. But don't you dare bend your knee. Hold on just a little longer. We've been through it ourselves. And I think the last thing they would share with us is this. We triumph when we humbly and persistently suffer together for the sake of our cities. Most scholars agree, 40 years after the death of Domitian, 85 to 90% of the city of Ephesus was Christian. They didn't have a budget. They didn't have a public place of worship. And I'm sure if they came here, they would be shocked. Like, oh, wow, what's this building? Oh, it's a church. Church to who? Jesus. Wait, wait, you have a public property building that you meet in regularly to worship Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Are you worried? Do you keep this a secret from people? Oh, no, we put it on Facebook all the time. Do, uh, do, when you leave, are you worried about people like coming and finding you? And like, are you worried about that? No. My friends look at me weird when when I'm telling them I'm Christian. (laughs) What? Like, I think they would say, like, whatever you want to accomplish in this city, whatever you want to accomplish in the Palouse, you could do it. You could do it. But it's going to take humble persistence to do so. It's going to take bleeding. It's going to require a submissive rebellion where your primary act is that of love where you refuse to compromise to the world systems and beliefs of the day. Where you claim Jesus as Lord. And it doesn't matter what political, socioeconomical, moral, cultural issue you're going to face. You know there's a God who sits on the throne above it all, and that's where your allegiance goes to. I think that's what they would tell us today. And so we come to a table every week. Whereas John says in Revelation 5, when he meets the one who is worthy to open the scroll, and he's described as a lion from the tribe of Judah, and John, it says John turns to see the lion, and what he sees is a, lot, is a lamb as if it was slaughtered. The eagle may have been the symbol of the Roman Empire, but that Roman Empire fell. Our symbol is this. This is our banner, the one we fly, the one we bend our knee to. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Whenever we eat this, we remember, let's remember. Then he took the cup, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant. Whenever we drink this, we remember our king. Let's remember. Father, I want to thank you that you're not a God of pithy answers. You are a good and merciful and kind God, but you're still King and Lord. And whatever hope, whatever reconciliation and redemption is to be found comes in your name, not in the name of Augustus or Domitian or any other person on this world. Lord, may we remember who our king is. 
May we refuse to bend our knee to anything or anyone else except for you. So Lord, as we worship, I pray that we would come together as a people to celebrate and to proclaim the name of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.